Buddha in ancient Indian Buddhism is commonly symbolically associated with the character of two Indian gods, Indra and Brahma. Indra being an interesting inclusion. The authors of the old texts were clearly not willing to leave Indra out of things. The ancient texts clearly did not want the Buddha to be open to the charge of being physically weak or to have led a life represented by flight from the virile pursuits of the warrior, the warrior caste, and just in general, duty to one's kingdom. A flight from virility being a vision basically universally shared and even revered in the modern age, especially by people in the West. After reading this amazing book, it comes across that, in fact, the men of this era despised these qualities. I'd like to take a quote quickly. Ancient Aryan root culture conceived warrior bodies as the ideal bodies developed by courageous, even foolhardy men who willingly rushed into battle against great odds, who slew their enemies without compunction and stole their cattle, and who then distributed the spoils among the members of the warrior's own clans." Unquote. In fact, many stories of the Buddha relate to his having bedded thousands of women with an insatiable appetite that no mortal man could match, throwing shade at Mara's pathetic attempts to attack him, to the point that you actually feel sorry for him, Mara being a constant menace to him and his crew. When you read into it deeper, he basically represents the ideal of masculinity. He's shown as the greatest of warriors in strength and prowess. On the one hand, through Brahma, he is scholarly, holy and religious, unmatched in this regard. And yet through his association with the martial god Indra, we have aspects of martial prowess and skill to protect his kingdom and tribe from enemies, and also just to show off his power and the supremacy of his way. Such as related to us so excellently by academic Dr. John Powers, author of A Bull of a Man, a book you all must read if you want to understand this. Enjoy. Great, well, um, thank you for spending some time uh, talking about uh, these subjects with me. I really appreciate it. No worries, happy to do it. Really, it was a fantastic book. Um, it's, it was one of those books that really just kind of recontextualized everything for me, um, particularly, you know, as someone being interested in uh, religion in general, comparative religion and stuff like that. It's one of those books that, um, you know, you rarely come across that, that completely transforms uh, the way you, you know, you contextualize things, I guess. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope it. Um, I hope it gets more attention. To be honest, because it, it's. Uh, I, I thought it was really that good. Um, it's actually had a fair amount of uh, feedback. Okay. Um, I had one very inter- interesting experience a couple of years ago. I was at the American Academy of Religion conference, and I was just walking around with a friend of mine, and there was a, a session on masculinities in religion. And uh, he wanted to go, and I was kind of—I I wasn't really that interested. But we ended up—he ended up talking me into it. And we went there, and it ended up being all about the book. Yeah, right. Okay. So there were about uh, five academics there who were all doing new uh, new research, and it was all based on uh, on what I had done in this book, which was it was really exciting to see that, uh, you know, to see that uh, people were taking what I had done in 
new directions that I had never thought of myself. And that uh, they were all, and they didn't know that I was there too, which was kind of funny. Mm. So they were all talking about the book and how it had influenced them and how they were using uh, this model that I had developed and they were taking it into new areas of, of study of religion that had never occurred to me when I was writing the book. Sure. So I think maybe a good place to start is just maybe um, maybe a brief introduction about your academic interests and um, maybe even how you came to this subject, because uh, it's it's not one that's probably common, I wouldn't imagine, um, reimagining Buddhism in this way. No, there's really a story to it. Um, what the, the way I came to it was I was um, I was working at Australian National University in Canberra, and I was co-teaching a course called History and Theory with a colleague, Chris Forth, who's a European intellectual historian, and a lot of his work is on masculinities in Europe, in European history. And it wasn't something that I knew much about, and I wasn't really particularly interested in the topic or in the the approach, but um, Chris was a good friend, and um, I uh, wanted to see what he was doing. So I read a book that he wrote on the Dreyfus Affair in, in France, uh, at the turn of the century, and he links this to changes, changing ideas about masculinities in France, uh, very persuasively. And as I was reading it, it was it was like what you were saying with this book. It opened up all kinds of ideas that uh, about things that I'd never thought of before, and in particular, ideas about the way men, male bodies, male roles are presented in Buddhist texts. And what was really interesting about this was that these were all texts, the ones that I was thinking of were all texts that had been uh, edited, in many cases translated, for more than 100 years. And nobody had ever noticed these things. But once this idea was sparked uh, about how men are, are portrayed in these texts, I started seeing more and more of these things. And at first, as I was reading the book, uh, whole um, sort of chapters began to form in my head about things that I could do with this. And then when I went out and started doing the research for the book, I found that almost every text that I looked at was full of these um, tropes about men and masculinities that no one had ever looked at before or noticed before or written about. So how do you think people have missed this? Well, we tend to miss things that are really obvious. And um, say, for instance, when you look at Buddhist uh, literature, it's overwhelmingly written by men, uh, it's written for men, and it's written about men. So I think that, you know, there's this, there was a, um, a really important movement in Buddhist studies where mostly women started looking at what was being said about women. But again, because most of the authors were, were men, they were sort of looking at the spaces uh, that were left or the, the um, uh, unexamined uh, social ideas that were behind these texts. But when you're talking about men and masculinities, they were everywhere because these are men, you know, basically writing about, uh, about their ideas. But in a sense, because it's so clear and it's so obvious, um, nobody had ever really looked at this before. So there was a lot, you know, all these texts had been studied, they'd been translated and so forth, but nobody had really looked at them from the point of view of what they said about men, masculinities, the male body, and sexuality. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that, that it did get missed in that way. And even by myself, because I, I do practice uh, Zen, um, admittedly, there's not a huge emphasis on, on this kind of textual stuff, but... Um, I have read some of these texts, and I must admit, I just never really made this kind of connection, this overall connection that you present in your book. So, yeah, I was super grateful for that. Um, maybe a good place to, to start in terms of this portrayal of the Buddha 
is is um, him as the kind of ideal masculine man, which is an idea that you present at the start of your your book. Um, his body proportions, his abilities are all superhuman. They're super masculine. I think that's kind of the way you present it. Yeah, the term that I coined for this was hypermasculine. Hypermasculine, that's a good one. Um, and a number of people have picked up on this, and and some of the people that I mentioned who are who are expanding this into other areas have started using that term. And even in other um, other uh, aspects of masculinity studies outside of religion, outside of Buddhism, that's become uh, had it's had some sort of currency uh, beyond this book. Sure. So, um, is it the Pali Canon? Are these the texts that? that mostly this conception of the Buddha comes from? Is that what you primarily used as your, your source material? Well, that was what I started with, but I found that when I started looking beyond the Pali Canon, uh, these uh, discourses about the Buddha and about uh, masculinity are, are pervasive all throughout India. Uh, you find that in Mahayana literature, I was surprised to find that even in scholastic texts, things like the Abhidharma Kosha, you find this. It's pervasive. The works of, uh, of Asanga. I was just looking the other day at some uh, material. Uh, I was, uh, I've been working on an article on the Bodhisattva Bhumi, the stages of the Bodhisattva by Asanga. And these discourses pervade that text. So this is a sort of a textbook for Bodhisattvas. But uh, the same sorts of things that I found in other texts are very very prominent in the Bodhisattva Bhumi too. Uh, and then when I started looking at tantric literature, it was interesting because while you see these uh, discourses continue there, in some cases the tantras undermine them and explicitly challenge them and, and, and overturn them. Uh, but then when you start looking beyond India, they really didn't translate. Um, even in Southeast Asia, in Theravada Buddhism, which claims to be very close to Indian orthodoxy, these discourses never really had the same sort of popularity and currency that they do in India. And the same is true in Tibet and East Asia. They're, they are there because you can't really ignore them, but they never really sort of caught on in the way that they did uh, among Indians. Hmm, interesting. And so uh, you would say then that, that the, the way he's represented is not necessarily universal today. Obviously, that's kind of what, what you're saying here or... Yeah, absolutely. And and, uh, and that's actually part, that gets back to the whole idea of masculinity studies. One of the insights of this field is that the body is historical. You know, we tend to think of the body as being the, the most natural aspect of our uh, of who we are. But uh, in fact, bodies have a history and different um, historical periods and different societies experience bodies differently. And that's one of the things that was really striking to me when I started looking at this. It became really clear to me that ancient Indian men experienced their bodies in very, very different ways from the way that I do or that uh, most people today, well, anybody today would, uh, that the way that bodies are understood in these texts are just very, very different from how um, anybody in the modern world, in any in any area, in the West or in Asia, uh, experiences their bodies. And so it's very much uh, a historical period, um, and it's specific to that historical period, the way people saw the body. Sure. So the way the Buddha is described typically as you put it, is a paragon of masculinity, um, the ultimate man. Uh, and he's referred to um, in terms of his many qualities, um, his beautiful body, superhuman virility, 
um, physical strength. He's amazing at archery and martial arts and stuff like that. But one of the more interesting things I thought was how women just can't keep their hands off him and his followers. I really love that part. Um, do you want to expound on that a little bit and um, give us give us some details on on how you came across that and and how that was um, relevant in that society? Well, that's one of the things that's interesting if you think about it, because the Buddha is uh, a religious teacher who founded a religious order that emphasizes celibacy. And he himself spent, you know, according to all the reports, spent most of his life uh, as a celibate monk. Uh, And he enjoined that in all of his followers. Anybody who broke the rules of celibacy would be thrown out of his order. But um, in these texts, he's conceived of as the ultimate man, the the Indian term is Purushottama. And there are numerous masculine epithets that describe him. And his uh, incredible virility early on when he has... Um, uh, uh, a whole harem of courtesans, in some cases thousands of them, and they all say, and the claim is that everyone is um, totally satisfy him, satisfied by him and thinks that he only spends time with her. And that's an important part of the narrative because if he were to simply renounce the world and become a monk, without having proven himself sexually and as sort of as the ultimate man, there would be a question as to whether he really was um, uh, free from sexuality. And so he had to have experienced this to sort of the fullest possible degree in order to be a viable uh, person as a, as a world renouncer. And so, and that idea that he's fully capable of performing sexually is continues to be important long after he's become a celibate monastic. And um, one of the things that, that occurred to me as I was looking at this was that for him to be the ultimate man is something that is also culture-specific. There are two primary ideals that you see throughout ancient Indian literature uh, that are kind of held up as um, the, the epitome of masculinity or sort of the, the, um, the ideals of masculinity. And one is the Brahmin who is saintly and contemplative and inclined toward religion. And the other one is the Kshatriya or warrior. Um, this is the person who, the, the, the Kshatriyas were not at the top of the society, they were in the second position. They were the the, the warriors, the rulers, uh, the people who were in the kingdom. And they were expected to be kind of virile, manly men, you know, um, skilled in martial arts, as well as skilled in the ways of warfare, also skilled in diplomacy. So they had to be both intelligent as well as athletic and skilled in the martial arts. And for the Buddha to be the ultimate man, he had to be able to do both of these. And so for most men, of course, you have to make a choice. You can't be both uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, a scholar and contemplative and a warrior and martial artist and athlete. But in order to be the ultimate man, the Buddha had to do both. So there's this kind of tension in the biographies where he is uh, exhibiting, he's performing both roles perfectly and flawlessly at the same time, even though uh, they, you know, there's an obvious conceptual tension between them. Sure, that's um, very interesting. I never really realized until recently, but the, the name Buddha Shakyamuni, um, I believe translates to Sage of the Scythians. Um, I'd not heard that before. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, however, I, I did read it in a book by a guy called Christopher Beckwith, um, and he wrote a book on on the Greek Buddha and, and how ancient Buddhism was reflected by 
or, or sorry, is reflected in the philosophy of a guy called Pharaoh in ancient Greece. And anyway, that's besides the point. But <laughs> that's actually not 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 historically accurate. It, yeah. uh, Shakyamuni means sage of the Shakyas, and the Shakyas, according to the to the literature, were a clan in northern India. Sure, sure. Uh, that he belonged to. And so the, the Shakyas were sort of his larger uh, familial uh, clan. And his father, Shudodana, was was a member of the Shakyas. And one of the interesting stories about the Shakyas is that, according to one uh, account, they were destroyed, um, uh, completely wiped out by a rival group. And while they were all mighty warriors, they had decided uh, they had become pacifists. And so they allowed themselves to be slaughtered. And the Buddha apparently uh, reportedly agreed with this decision. That is, he thought that it was it was the right thing to do. He, um, After he became a, an ascetic, he completely renounced any form of warfare, even in self-defense. So the story reports that he was saddened by their demise, but uh, he sort of um, it, uh, approved of their decision. So th these Indo-Aryan kingdoms, I guess, as you're saying now, are famous for uh, fighting one another, right? That was pretty much what they were doing the whole time, I think. <laughs> well, there, there certainly was fighting, and, and they, they were mostly small uh, independent kingdoms that uh, sometimes they would form alliances, sometimes they would fight, sometimes they would leave each other alone, but there was always tension because um, there was, you know, there was always rivalry for control of territory. So um, one of the interesting elements of the story, I thought, was... Um, the fact that his father is trying to soften him up with the harem, and you refer to his supreme sexual abilities. Um, I, an interesting element, I guess, is, is the fact that in ancient India, you seem to say that this was this kind of pleasure-seeking and hedonism is considered a kind of um, feminine behavior or, or, or was considered to be feminine. Well, it's not so much the behavior because, you know, um, Prodigious sexuality is a masculine thing in ancient right. India, but the problem was that he uh, lived in the quarters with women, and so there was a there was a sense among other kshatriyas that he wasn't hanging out with other manly men, uh, and that uh, that being around women too much could undermine his masculinity, and so. Uh, one of the, the key stories of his early life was that he had to prove his masculine bona fides by uh, engaging in a, um, a contest with other Kshatriya young men uh, in, in which they, he had to prove himself in uh, wrestling and boxing and running and uh, martial arts and most particularly archery. Archery was kind of the, the paradigmatic activity for a warrior mm, uh, in ancient India. Yeah. And so that was the key thing that uh, when he showed himself to be far and away the best archer among all of the young Kshatriyas. That was how he finally established himself as a truly manly man. Do you think there's an Indo, obviously an Indo-European influence on these stories? Because these kinds of stories seem to be endemic to, to places where you had that Indo-European diaspora. Well, I, I guess you could say that, but you know, the idea of of a warrior being good at warrior things isn't necessarily just an Indo-European uh, trope. Uh, I think you would find that pretty much anywhere. Um, uh, you know, anywhere where warrior values are valorized, um, those sorts of activities would be sort of um, esteemed among uh, or among the ruling class. Mm, okay. So, um, it, through all of this, he kind of interestingly, I thought, shows like a. A coolness in a, even though he's you know uh, has his giant harem and 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 all this stuff is as part of his renouncing of the world he he begins to just really 
find it all disgusting. And this is before he, um, before he leaves the kingdom. And there's, there was one description that I, I really liked was, I, I think it was one night where everyone had had a party and all, all the women were sleeping on the floor. There's this really quite um, aggressive description of how he just completely loses all interest with women and, and sees them as, um, I think it was described as bags of filth or something like that, um, which is just, I, I honestly just never read anything like that um, in all my, my reading on Buddhism. Can we expand on that kind of idea of, of all these different um, different experiences he has during this this stage of his uh, story? Sure. Well, that's actually um, a recurring trope in Buddhism, too. There's a whole type of meditation or a whole series of meditations in which you meditate on the foulness of the body. And so that image of the Buddha seeing women as they really are uh, is part of that whole trope that, you know, when we look at bodies sort of as a whole superficially, we see uh, we see them as attractive. But if you start breaking them down into the component parts, you see things like blood and pus and urine and muscle and bone and things like that. And if you were sort of, you know, dissect a body and lay all these out, that it is repulsive. It makes you sick. Uh, it's only when it's sort of in the in the sort of standard package that it looks attractive. But these meditations involve sort of mentally dissecting the body into its component parts and thinking which of these is uh, is actually attractive on its own. Like if you take the skin off a body, is that attractive? Is the the blood attractive? Uh, and when you start looking at things that way, you start realizing that the body is actually you know full of stuff that by itself is kind of disgusting. And so when he saw the women after the party, they were all disheveled, their makeup was running, uh, they were they would fallen asleep, they passed out from being too drunk and they were drooling uh, and so forth. And many of them were making moaning sounds and things like that. So all of this superficial attractiveness that they had created uh, was now sort of exposed for what it was for, as an artifice, as something that was purely superficial and put on. And of course, the same is also true of male bodies. It's not just the female bodies. Mm-hmm. He looked at, at all of the revelers across the, you know, in the hall and saw that they were all in the same, they were all in the same uh, category. And he decided that any sort of attachment to these sorts of things, to, you know, to bodies, to things that are superficial, to the world and so forth, is ultimately doomed to end up in misery because nothing can can satisfy you in the world um, in any sort of ultimate sense. Okay, yeah. I think those meditations are in the Mahasati Patana Sutta. They're there, but there's, there's a whole literature on this. Um, mm. uh, and again, you see this in a lot of the scholastic literature, the, the discussion of what's called meditation on the fowl in English. Do you, do you practice this? Are you are you a practicing Buddhist or just? I, I do practice Buddhist, but I've never done those sorts of meditations. Right. Okay. Uh, in some cases, it actually involves going to a, um, a cemetery or a charnel ground and observing corpses in the various stages of decomposition Definitely. and sort of becoming aware through this what bodies are actually like and how they uh, decompose and fall apart. It would, another thing you were saying is that um, they had all these uh, sexual rules for the monastic order. Um, and, and actually, you, obviously, you can't have sex with women. That's completely off the cards. But you, you could have sex with a decomposing body or something like that, I think. Well, you, <laughs> that, you that weren't supposed okay. to. <laughs> it, it wasn't as bad. Um, the idea, that, that was one of the things that I was really trying to puzzle out was that what's really going on behind this? Um, and so it seems to me that 
the rules were really primarily about attachment. And so having sex, uh, having a homosexual sex wasn't as bad as heterosexual sex because the assumption was that when men have sex with other men, they don't really, they don't fall in love with other men. Uh, that is the idea of homosexuality as a lifestyle, as Michel Foucault points out, is really something that doesn't appear in the world until the 19th century. Um, and so the idea that there's actually a lifestyle, that there are men who would prefer uh, to have sex with men, was really not even considered in these texts. So in a sense, when men engage in sexual uh, encounters with other men, the assumption is that they're sort of basically scratching an itch and that any orifice would do. Uh, but the problem with women in these texts is that when men have sex with women, there's a tendency to become attached to them, to become sort of exclusively desirous of a particular woman, and to take that as as the most important thing in your life. Whereas what the Buddhist, uh, what Buddha is, is arguing or is urging people to do is to join a monastic order and to renounce sexuality. So the danger really lies for, for in these in this literature in heterosexual sex. Uh, rather than in any other sorts of sexual activity. And so that's why having sex with a decomposed corpse isn't as bad because you can't really, um, what's the word, have a relationship with a corpse. Yeah, right, right. Just, just, just <laughs> At least that's how I read it. I re this was one of the things that I thought was really puzzling, mm. that you know things that would seem to be really like totally abhorrent seem to be less bad uh, than other things that seem to be sort of more normal sexuality to me. Yeah, and the punishments seem to be severe. He 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 was really he was quite severe with people that broke the rules, right? Right, and and even when like there was there was one famous case of a monk who had uh, been married, but he he when he became married when he got married he hadn't produced children, and so his parents came to him and said, well, look, you know, your duty as a son is to give us uh, uh, heirs who will take care of us in our old age, and you have neglected that duty, and we really need you to do this, um, and to have sex with your former wife. And he said, no, I'm a monk now. And they said, look, we're not asking you to do anything that you haven't done before. You had sex with her before. It just wasn't successful. So we're asking you to do what you did, what you did before. And so he agreed that that did make sense, and he went and had sex with her, and she became impregnated. But then when the Buddha found out he was uh, uh, he really came down on him and excoriated him and, and he was expelled from the order because even though he had done this before once you take a vow you become a new person that is there's a, a change in your psychophysical continuum so you're not the person you were before so actions that were okay before become uh, 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 are, are forbidden to you now and so that was why he was expelled from the order was it expected in these cultures? that obviously you you had to produce children, right? Do, do you think in, in the ancient uh, times in, in this context that um, they accepted monks that hadn't performed their duties in, in that way? Well, again, it was a real problem, particularly in ancient India, because um, there's a, a long tradition of, uh, of a sort of hazy afterlife in which the uh, well-being of the spirits who live there is dependent upon their descendants performing rituals to sustain them. So the uh, they become if that doesn't happen, they become a hungry ghost. They sort of wander um, through through cyclic existence. They're always hungry. They're always miserable, and it's because their descendants haven't done the proper thing. And that was what is being referred to in this story and in other stories like it. So when monks. Um, 
leave the world before they produce progeny. This is a tragedy for uh, for uh, for the families, and their lineages are cut off. You know, there's no heirs. There's no the family doesn't continue, and this is seen as something that uh, really reflects badly on them. So that was one of the things that the Buddhists had to contend with was this this expectation of uh, of uh, uh, filial piety. And particularly sons, right? Right. If you had um, daughters only, you had deficient sperm or, um, I forget, bad karma or whatever it was. There was a really fascinating part of their culture, it seems. Right. And also women uh, would traditionally go to another family and they would become part of that family. And so uh, sons would remain basically, uh, would remain with their own family. So even if your daughter goes to another family and produces heirs, those are heirs for that family, not for yours. So what, one of the interesting dichotomies um, you present in, in this uh, conception of things is the portrayal of the Buddha with a, with a perfect body and, and the dichotomy that in, in ancient India, you couldn't really change your body. You were just kind of born with, with this karmic inheritance, whereas in the West, you can you know, go to the gym or do these kinds of things to try and beautify yourself. Um, it was, I thought it was really interesting that they viewed the world that way. Like if you were beautiful, you were beautiful. And if you weren't, you weren't kind of thing. There was, there was no way to try and make yourself better. Yeah, and that, that was one of the things that struck me. I, I wrote a couple of articles on this trope. Uh, one was uh, entitled, Why Practicing Virtue is Better Than Working Out. And uh, it's just, uh, and it's basically just on the same. So I sort of highlighted that particular aspect that you have a body that is the result of your past karma. So the things that you did, positive or negative, are played out on your body. And in a sense, your body is um, is a public document uh, that, that proclaims where you are along the path, what sort of positive or negative things you did. So if you have a body that's beautiful, that's sort of tall and well-proportioned and pleasing to look at and so forth, that's an indication that in a past life, you performed, uh, you, you were engaged in virtuous activities. Whereas if you were sort of ugly or, mal or malformed or you're sickly or whatever, these are all signs that you engage in negative karma. And so um, you are in a sense, there, there's really not a sense that you can do much to improve that in your lifetime. So you can, you know, you can practice, you can go to the gym, you can run and so forth. But uh, in the Buddha's case, he outshone all of his competitors without really doing any sort of training or exercise because his body was just better than theirs. Uh, and if you think about it, we all, we, we know that this is the case. Like, it doesn't really matter how much I train, I'm never going to beat Usain Bolt, Right. Yeah. Um, there's a guy who I think is called the mountain, referred to as the mountain. His name is, last name is Hafthor, right. who yeah. just yeah. broke the world's deadlifting record. 500 kilograms or something crazy. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much time I spend at the gym. I'm never going to lift as much as this guy. No, no. He's, he's huge. He's, you know, he's like almost seven feet tall and he weighs about 400 pounds and he's massive. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, in a sense we do, we're aware of that now, but we still have a very different set of discourses about what you can do to improve your lot. But in ancient India, there was a, a much stronger assumption, at least as, as indicated in these texts, that you were basically, you, you had a particular lot in this life, you know, a physical lot uh, that was a result of your past karma, and you could only minimally do anything about that. Yeah, I mean, the, as you say, the monks are always portrayed as well in these stories as uh, physically beautiful and athletic, and uh, again, you know, just always just so attractive to women. Women just are just all over these guys. Um 
And, and, they, and they, as soon as they see them, they, they're immediately attracted to them. And that's one of the things in these texts that the, 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 the biggest danger to monks is, the, is horny women. Yeah. Man, ancient India must have been the place to be, I guess. God yeah. <laughs> but I, I've, t- I've heard that from monks, actually, that um, I know a number of monks who have told me that they do have a real problem with women coming on to them. In a sense, an unattainable man for a lot of women is, is a real turn on. Uh, really? And, uh, yeah. Uh, and it apparently really, it really is a thing even today. And, and what kind of monks are these, are these um, ones in Australia or... Um uh, all over, actually. It's, uh, it's, um, and um, I've talked, there have been a number of, of, of sexual scandals in Buddhism. And one theme among some of the monks who have talked about this is that they come from a society in which they're part of a sangha. They're in a monastic situation. And you have other monks who are sort of, you know, working together to, um, to keep each other in line. But then they come to a place like Australia or the United States, and they're usually the only um, religious uh, teacher, the only monk in a, in a Buddhist center. And there are all these women who, there who, in many cases, will like, you know, come on to them or throw themselves at them. And um, they're not really prepared for this. They, they don't really have... And, you know, uh, and and then they, they succumb and this is and you have very different ideas about sexuality operating in these Asian societies and Western societies. And that's one of the things that led to sex scandals, because um, the expectations are very different in on both sides and they don't really understand. Neither understands where the other is coming from or how they view this situation. Yeah. How interesting. I'd never heard that before. So in, in like, I know in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, some of these bodhisattvas can have harems. Is that the case? And, and, and the women in these harems are kind of, um, how would you say, they gain karmic merit as a result of sleeping with these guys? Is that, have you, have you heard that before? Well, it's more that um, the, the bodhisattva does whatever works in terms of bringing sentient beings to hear the teachings and then to to progress toward Buddhahood. Right. So people uh, say women who are attracted to a, the Bodhisattva physically uh, will be, you know, he he will sort of engage with them that way, but then try to wean them from sexuality and move them toward the path. So this is called skill and means. So the Bodhisattva does whatever works best in terms of helping sentient beings. And are you aware of this happening today in Tibetan Buddhism or other other forms of Buddhism? Well, this type of activity is something that you see in the text, but I really don't know of anybody who would say, oh, I'm attracting female followers in order to wean them from sexuality. But within Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, you do have sexual practices, but these are not supposed to be done by people who have monastic vows. So if somebody wants to engage in in tantric sexual practices, they're supposed to give up their vows uh, before they do this. Okay. So traditionally, say, if you have taken monastic vows, you would go to your teacher, you would say, I've decided that I'm going to engage in these, uh, in these um, tantric practices that require uh, sexual yogas, and so I want to give up my vows in order to be able to do this. Uh, and that's, it's not seen as something that's shameful or problematic or, or even disappointing. Uh, in many cases, there are, cert- there are certain things, like particularly, um, this is kind of esoteric, but uh, one of the um, themes, uh, one of the important things in, in Tibetan Buddhism was what's called hidden treasures or terma. And usually, uh, pretty much every uh, treasure discovered, terma that I know of, is expected to engage in sexual yogas in order to be able to uh, 
change their subtle energies in a way that allows them to be able to do this. Uh, so they will take a, a particular tantric concert, usually chosen by their teacher, and then they will engage in these yogas that enable them to be able to fulfill their destiny to find these hidden treasures. Interesting. Um, the, um, the idea of nuns in, in these old texts, I know initially the Buddha rejected the idea of women being allowed into his order. Well, that um, it, it's... Uh, well, one, one of the things that I'd like to point out uh, when I'm talking about these things is that when we're doing this, when we're talking about this literature, we're not really talking about the Buddha. We're talking about a literary character called Buddha. Sure. So nobody really knows what the Buddha was actually like, and nobody really knows what the Buddha said or did. And all of these texts were written by later followers who were almost, uh, almost all of them were celibate monks. And so there's a pervasive misogyny you find in these texts, um, mm. and a lot of sort of over-the-top denigrations of women and their, the, the evil of women and the women as temptresses and seductresses. But in a sense, a lot of it sounds kind of defensive, like these are celibate men struggling with their own issues of, of becoming celibate and trying to kind of, you know, convince themselves and others uh, to maintain this discipline, which is obviously a difficult discipline to do. Mm. So we don't really know what the Buddha said or did about women, but the text, uh, you know, the textual tradition reports that he was initially opposed to the idea of having a, an order of, of female ascetics and that his um, cousin and attendant Ananda uh, convinced him to do this. And one of the, the, the two main arguments were, first of all, that women have the same ability as men to attain the higher fruits of the path, like arhathood and liberation and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that previous Buddhists had, done this, had also had orders of nuns. So there was, in a sense, there was, a, um, there was an argument that women had the capacity to attain uh, the fruits of the path and that previous Buddhists had ordained women too. So there was a precedent there. There seems to be an assertion, though, that um, only a male body can can reach enlightenment. That's true in some in in uh, the majority of um, well in in the Terva, in the Pali Canon, yes only Buddhas uh, only men can be Buddhas. Uh, in a, most Mahayana literature, it's also the case that only men can become Buddhas. But then you do have. Um, very uh, advanced female practitioners who are just on the cusp of Buddhahood, uh, who are, you know, sort of, you know, in the penultimate stage. And then when you get to the tantric um, texts, it's, uh, there are, there's a proliferation of female Buddhas. Uh, so it really depends on what you're looking at and who you're talking to uh, in this. Sure. And certainly it seems though in the, in the Pali canon, it, it, it was, there was a real emphasis on the male body being required for that. Right. And and the sense that only a male body is capable of attaining Buddhahood. But, you know, again, you need to look at this in context. There's a reason for this. And it's a social uh, it's a social set of uh, of assumptions. So um, as you move through from life to life, you you generate various sorts of karma. Right. Mm -hmm. And so positive karma results in positive outcomes. And so if you have really, really good karma, you will have the best type of body. And in a society in which men are in a superior position, the assumption would be that you're going to have a male body, just as it's also assumed that you're going to be rich, like say the Buddha was born into a noble family, that you're going to be well-favored, you're going to have good circumstances and so forth. So in the society um, where men are, uh, they take a, a, a sort of historical contingency as a universal necessity. And so because men are in the superior position in the society, the assumption is that people who have really good karma will necessarily be born as men. Yeah. 
Very interesting. But again, then in the tantric texts, the, the tantric texts really overturn a lot of these things. And you even find in Mahayana literature the, uh, a questioning of these discourses about the superiority of masculinity. One of the most famous of these, and, and one of the most really interesting ones, is the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, uh, in which um, there's. Uh, do you know the story? No, no, never heard of it. It's a wonderful story. It's uh, and it, it's really interesting when you look at it in terms of historical context. So the story is that Vimalakirti is the, the the hero of the story. He's a lay bodhisattva. He's not a monk. Uh, he has a family and he has a harem. Uh, and one day he starts a Dharma discourse, and there's a whole uh, build-up to, to how the Dharma discourse starts, but uh, he's, he's primarily uh, discussing the Dharma with Manjushri, the, the Bodhisattva who embodies wisdom. And as they start uh, talking Dharma and they start getting more and more uh, abstruse and more and more into rarefied aspects of the Dharma, there's a young goddess who lives in Vimalakirti's house, and she starts showering down flowers on the assembly, which is made up of Bodhisattvas and of Hinayana monks. And when the flowers, uh, when the petals of the flowers touch the robes of the bodhisattvas, they, they simply fall off and, and fall to the floor. But when they touch the robes of the uh, of the shravakas, the, the, the Hinayana monks, they stick to them. And monks are not supposed to have to wear flowers or any sort of adornment. So there's this scene where they're frantically trying to brush off the flowers to get rid of them. And so the goddess uh, addresses Shariputra, who is one of the two main disciples of the Buddha and is said by the Buddha to have been the most advanced in terms of wisdom of his Hinayana disciples. She says, Shariputra, why are you trying to brush off the flowers? He says, oh, goddess, it is because flowers are not appropriate for monks. And she says, the flowers are merely conceptuality. There's nothing, there's nothing inher- inherently flowerish about them. Um, it's only you, uh, you Hinayana monks with your conceptuality that cause them to stick to you because of your attachments. Um, and then uh, there's a, uh, and after she sort of chastises him for not really understanding the Dharma or understanding um, uh, the, the relative nature of things, he comes back with basically saying, well, if you're so smart, why are you a woman and not a man? And she responds by turning him into a woman and herself into a man. And this, is, this part gets great because <laughs> monks are not supposed to have any physical contact with women. And so now he's in a female body, so he can't avoid physical contact with a woman because he is a woman. And so you have this, this image of him you know, intensely uncomfortable with his, within his own body. And she says, uh, Oshari Putra, um, uh, how is it that you are in the form of a woman? And he says, oh, goddess, I am a woman without really being a woman. And she says, just so, Shariputra, all women are women without really being women. And she goes on to talk about, you know, well, basically the gender roles are socially specific and that we, you know, we adopt these roles and so forth, but there's nothing inherently real about any of these things. These are just, you know, um, things that we're taught to do and that we then enact without really thinking about them. And then... She changes him back, she changes herself back, and there's a whole discourse that's basically undermining fixed ideas about gender. And this was probably written about the second century. And it, it, Okay, so the Pali Canon was, what, first, first century? Uh, well, the, pa- the Pali Canon was, was compiled in the first century, but it probably contained discourses that went back probably to the Buddhist time, which was about several hundred years before then. Right, yeah, so there is quite a significant gap, right, of about five or six hundred years from the... Yeah. 
the proposed existence of the Buddha to the the Pali Canon? Well, and, until the compilation of the Pali Canon, the, the Pali Canon was was probably circulating orally uh, for centuries right. uh, before it was actually written down. Okay. Interesting. And then could you explain where did Tantra come into this? And that, that was a few hundred years beyond that, wasn't it? The, the, the emergence of the Tantras. Right. Well, we don't really know, of course, when these things actually happened. But uh, again, you know, the Pali Canon contains probably the earliest strata of, of, of Indian Buddhist literature. And I would expect that a lot of these probably do go back to the Buddha and were probably repeated more or less accurately. And in, in a pre-literate culture, people often will have prodigious memories and will remember things. Uh, and you had people within the community who would correct uh, um, the way these things were, were remembered. So, you know, there was probably a fair amount of, uh, of um, continuity uh, from, uh, I think, when the Buddha taught and when these things were compiled. But then the Mahayana texts begin to appear around the beginning of the Christian era. Uh, and uh, they continued to be composed for another uh, several centuries, probably until maybe the fourth or fifth century or something like that. Uh, and then there's another gap uh, of probably several hundred years before the Tantras begin to appear. And these also, they, they contain, they follow the same format. They have the same sort of, uh, and they also claim to have been spoken by the Buddha. But you don't really see any mention of these until about the seventh century. And then there appears to have been a real proliferation. Uh, and so from about the seventh century, probably until the ninth or tenth century, there appears to have been a real um, proliferation of, of people composing these texts and, and circulating them. Uh, and that probably continued right up until about the 13th, 12th or 13th century when Buddhism uh, disappeared from India. And one of the latest ones, uh, according to most people who study this literature, was probably the Kalachakra Tantra. How much was Buddhism influenced by by Brahmanism at the time of, of the Buddha? Obviously, well, in a sense, I like to think of him as, as um, the, the the two Indic characters that I see him as as having a lot in common with are Brahma, who is sort of the paradigmatic Brahman, and then Indra, who is the paradigmatic warrior. Mm-hmm. And that's, in a sense, what uh, those are kind of the ideals that he has to live up to. And one of the problems the Buddhists had, I think, was that they were competing with religious traditions like the Brahmins who had gods. Mm-hmm. And the, the Buddha was, you know, sort of, while you know, he may have had superhuman abilities, uh, he lived basically a human lifespan. He was sort of recognizably human. Uh, and he, in competing with gods, he was sort of at a disadvantage. And so the Buddhists really had to create a character that could compete in that religious marketplace. Um, and that was, in a sense, uh, you know, what, what we would call today Brahmanism was probably one of the main uh, competitors in the religious marketplace, but there were also ascetic orders like the the um, the Ajivakas and the Jains. Uh, the Jains still continue today, and the Jains were much more ascetic, much more sort of hardcore, and so. Uh, they were competing for uh, for followers. They were competing for alms and for um, uh, support and so forth. So they were competing both with these order, these religious traditions that had gods as their main figures, as well as other religious orders like the giants, who were more hardcore in their ascetic practices. So the Buddha's the Buddha referred to what he. Um, propounded as a middle way, but there were, there are lots of accounts in the Buddhist literature that they had to deal with this, you know, people say, oh, you guys are too lax, you're not as, as hardcore as the giants, or, you know, you have a merely human founder and we're following gods. So the Buddhists were really sort of, um, were forced to create a tradition that could compete with these other, um, uh, other orders. And I guess this kind of ties in with these ideas of perfect masculine bodies and and perfect behavior, that kind of thing. 
Well, that's, that was my conclusion. I, I, you know, I think that in, in reading this literature, I see a subtext in which they're competing with gods. And so they need to create a figure, the Buddha, who um, transcends the gods. And so one of the recurring tropes is that the gods like Indra, uh, uh, like uh, Indra, Brahma, and so forth, come to the Buddha and they bow down before him and touch their, their crowns to his head, uh, to his feet, sorry, and uh, say how much smarter he is than them. And they uh, begged to become his, his students. So this is obviously a trope to, you know, kind of undermine the appeal that a god would have to, to many people. Sure. And, and in your book, you, you really show that they did, as a, as a group, as a monastic order, have all these strict rules that were there, but definitely served to differentiate themselves from other um, aesthetics, as you say, that were say, wandering around the place naked and and doing all these hardcore practices. But the Buddha insisted that they wear, you know, clothing, for example, that was always um, clean and and, uh, they they were to look um, like the people around them could project their, uh, how do you describe it, their um, best virtues on these monks. Does that make sense? Do you kind of see what I'm getting at? Absolutely, yeah. And, 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 you know, this idea that your body proclaims your level of religious attainment. Um, there are a number of, of uh, places, in the, particularly in the Pali Canon, where uh, particularly kings are usually the ones who, who, who say this. They say, they say, we look at other orders, and they're all emaciated, and they look miserable, and they're dirty, and they don't bathe in everything, and they smell bad. And then we look at the Buddhist monks, and they're robust, healthy uh, men with beautiful bodies, and they're pleasing to look at. So clearly the Buddha's dharma is better than these other ones. Uh, so that was, that was the marketing strategy here, that uh, we have better monks than they do, and that the, you know, the, their bodies proclaim the superiority of our dharma. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it kind of brings me to this, this topic of the monastic order. Um, when reading about it, it really reminds me of kind of almost kind of like a, a gang, and I don't mean that in like, um, you know, they're, they're going around shooting things up or anything. I just mean that all the behaviors um, are really, you know, like a small military unit or something. They, you know, they were expected to be strong, uh, loyal. They were expected to have mastery of the body. All these, like, things that I would consider, you know, traditional masculine ideals. True, and there's, there's certainly a code of conduct. But another thing that I found really interesting was uh, there was a chapter that I, that I wrote that, where I, I, I coined a term um, monastic couples, uh, there are a number of, of, of monks who are always sort of discussed in pairs. Shariputra Magalyayan are one. The Buddha and Ananda are another. There, there, are, there are probably about 20 or 30 of these uh, of these couples that show up in the, in the canon. And they're, they're, they're best mates. They travel together. They hang out together. Every year, the monks were expected to uh, stay in one place during the rainy season retreat. They would often build a temporary hut, and they would stay with their closest friends during that three-month uh, period of the rains. And that was often seen as the, the high point of the year for them. They would have uh, great company. They would be able to, you know, discuss the Dharma with their friends. They would engage in meditation. And this idea of of the uh, the value of male companionship is something that resonates throughout the the monastic literature, and that um, that is much better than say that it's it, it seen. It, there's this idea that you can really just sort of relax, be yourself. 
fulfill your destiny with other men. But when you're with women and you have a family, there are going to be inevitable tensions because men and women are so different and things like that. But you can really sort of find true peace in a, in a, a male community. Uh, and that that idea comes out over and over and over again in this literature, that it's just a better way to live, uh, to be a celibate monastic with other celibate monastics who are all you know pursuing the same path, who are all following the same discipline. And this idea that you mentioned of, of being like a military order, there is this very very elaborate code of conduct that they're all supposed to belong. They're all supposed to adhere to, and this is this is uh, creating a sense of solidarity. That is, they all follow the same conduct, and they're supposed to meet fortnightly and recite this uh, uh, and and to confess any sort of uh, transgressions they might have made. Uh, and this sort of maintains this this solidarity and the sense of community. Yeah, in in that chapter, um, th- there was a particular part where. A couple of monks, that, like you're talking about, during the rainy season, I think, um, they went without speaking for a couple of months. And, and the Buddha, um, uh, you know, scolded them effectively, uh, called them stupid men and how they spent their time like a flock of sheep and a bunch of slackers. <laughs> they pretended and they pretended it was it was really successful. And, he, and then he goes on to say, how could these stupid men embrace the practice of silence in imitation of other religious sects? <laughs> Male companionship is is held up as the ideal form of life, uh, the ideal way to be. And if you're with other other um, uh, religiously inclined men and you're in this sort of situation where you can spend your time together discussing the Dharma and uh, and sort of helping each other to progress, that's that's the best possible lifestyle, according to this literature. Right. Yeah. Do do you see that reflected in monastic orders today? You say you've had some contact with with monks. Is this this something that that has continued to this day? I would say so. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the vinaya, the the rules for monastic conduct, continued to be normative across the the Buddhist world for monks and nuns, um, and. So, and and this idea of the solidarity of the community is very important. That's that's what a sangha is. It's it's a a group. It's a a, a group of people, and you know they're all they're supposed to share um, the same values, follow the same rules and norms, and they all work together to help each other to progress. Sure, it definitely is a communal um, religious practice, like all religious practices are. I don't think there's anything out there that's um, purely individualistic, um, even though many people like myself, uh, don't necessarily engage in, in that communitarian aspect of Buddhism as much as what we probably should. Right, but it's still there. Um, I was just uh, talking to a friend of mine who was a monk, and yeah. one of his decisions is now whether to continue sort of he, – he works a, as an academic, and he's also had an invitation to join a monastic community in Europe. Okay. And so uh, – and that's kind of the tension for him. You know, on the one hand, he likes the academic work that he does, but – he sort of has a sense that there is something to be gained by being part of a community, and the times that he spent with other monks have been very beneficial to him. So there's a real, you know, kind of kind of pull there to to uh, go that way and become part of this monastic community and to benefit from uh, the, you know, working with living and working uh, and interacting with others, and also benefiting the others too. Yeah, it must be a hard decision to make. Yeah. Well, it is, you know, he's going to be struggling with that for a while. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he decides to go with the, uh, you know, with the uh, monastic group because, you know, in a sense, he spent his whole life largely by himself. And um, 
often, you know, people don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, why he lives as a monk, uh, and he's really the only one around. So, uh, and I've talked to a number of others. I, I, one of my best friends when I was in, an undergraduate uh, arrived at the University of Virginia as a monk. Actually, two of them did. And within a year, both of them had given up their vows. But when they arrived, there was no sense for them that they were going to stop being monks. But being sort of, you know, the only monks in a, in a situation like this really sort of, you know, the, the context wasn't there that they had had when they were living in India. Yeah, it definitely makes it, makes it hard. I mean, I really notice um, when I do, say, something like a seven-day session, uh, for example, that you, your practice really deepens because you, 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 as you say, you're given that context, first of all, but all the disciplines associated with, with practice, it's very difficult to maintain when you're not, not around other people that are also taking it seriously. And that, that really becomes apparent when you engage in activities like that. You right, you, bolster, you bolster your, yourselves. And it's, it's similar to playing a sport together. Hmm. Uh, you know, I've played a number of, of team sports. And one of the remarkable things about sports is you do things uh, in that context, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you didn't think that you could, you could do these things. And then you, you do them and you do them largely as a result of working with others and, you know, be working as part of a team. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it completely makes sense. And, and in that uh, context, and it makes sense why they insist on these kinds of things in the, in the religious texts, doesn't it? There's, there's a, a strong logic behind this. You know, some of these things are sort of, you know, things that we can look at as uh, remnants of, a, of another culture with very different ways of looking at things. But there are others that are really kind of universal. And I think this idea of community and the value of working together as part of a community with shared values is something that is universal. Yeah, hundred percent. I I um I definitely like the fact that uh, I, I'd like to talk about um, the Buddha's uh, confrontation with Mara, if if we could, because I, I really enjoyed that, and it's such a, a common story. But the way you presented it in your book kind of just gave me a completely different viewpoint. I mean, he, the way you describe it is after he's he's gone through all these renunciations and he sits under the Bodhi tree and and. Uh, engages in basically a kind of spiritual combat with, with Mara, um, uh, even, even talking, talking trash to him, kind of like a, a boxer. I just thought that was, it was fascinating. Well, you can feel kind of sorry for Mara in a sense, because yeah, yeah. Mara, you know, uh, the name literally means death. Um, and he's, you know, sort of a satanic figure in a sense. But when you look at his backstory, He's a high-ranking god of the desire realm, the realm in which we live. And the, the dominant theme in the desire realm is desire. And so Mara is just doing what he's, you know, doing his thing. He's a, he's a god. He's in charge of this realm, and he's trying to maintain, uh, maintain his subjects. So if they, if they renounce desire, his subjects will leave him. So he's just basically trying to sort of keep his kingdom intact. Uh, and he's, uh, you know, minding his own business, and then the Buddha attains uh, Buddhahood, and then he decides that he's going to pummel Mara for, you know, sort of gratuitously, I guess. And so he drags Mara into this contest and then starts beating up on him and trash-talking him. It was, it was funny, too, because I think Mara had, you know, a horde of demons and, and all this other stuff, but he also had uh, a whole bunch of women of varying ages and, and uh, tried to uh, trip him up with all these women yet again. And then his, his last thing is, is interesting too. His last stratagem is to 
sort of appeal to the Buddha's uh, ego. And he says, look, what you've experienced is so transcendent, so profound that nobody's going to be able to understand you. So you'd just be wasting your time if you were to go out and start preaching this Dharma. So just, you know, uh, go go off into nirvana, don't tell anybody about it, and you're going to be a lot happier that way. And, and the Buddha initially says, yeah, that makes sense. And it's only after uh, Brahma comes and intercedes with him and tells him, look, there are people who have only a little bit of ignorance who would benefit from your teachings, that he decides that he will become a teacher. Mm. And Mara comes up a couple of more times, right? Like trying to trying to trip up his uh, his order on a few occasions. Well, yeah, basically whenever um, a monk or nun uh, transgress with the vows, and particularly when they re- return to lay life, it's always attributed to Mara and his machinations. Yeah, interesting. You always seem to need a um, a figure like Mara in a religion, don't you? It seems to be a common um, theme. Well, yeah, and if you think about it, you know, get back to this idea of the uh, the joys of um, of celibate companionship, the bliss of meditative attainments. Uh, how do you explain people who engage in these sorts of things and still say, yeah, okay, I'll go back to lay life. You need to have something that explains that away. And Mara serves that purpose in many uh, narratives. Yeah. I just, I love the way he, he, he uh, says it. I might actually just quote it here because it's really good. He says, Mara, I will strike you down as a strong wrestler, um, a weak one. So will I strike you down, evil one, as a strong bull, a weak one. So I will crush you. <laughs> and, and he goes on like this. And so it's really portraying the Buddha as just not a turn the other cheek pacifist at all. You can really see that warrior um, concept in, in the way he talks, right? And, and almost like a bully right? too, right? Because, yeah. you know, Mara doesn't have a chance. And the Buddha's just beating up on him. Mara, you know, everything he does is completely ineffectual. And Mara didn't even pick the fight. It was the Buddha who brought him there to, to beat up on him and to trash talk him. Yeah, and it's really got to be a, um, a, a feature of that culture at the time. It must have been a, a very uh, aggressive place to be. <laughs> Well, that was part of the, the, the ideal of the Kshatriya. The Kshatriya was a warrior, uh, somebody who could, you know, not only beat enemies in battle, but who reveled in the conquest. Sure. And, and he certainly does. And he, he kind of likes showing off as well, I think. I mean, obviously, after he beats off Mara, um, he, he goes back to, uh, to his kingdom to show his dad and, and the community what he's obtained. And I, I, I think the way you describe it is he comes in and uh, does all these magic tricks and shoots water out, out of his uh, legs or something or other. I mean, it's, it's, he's just really showing off. And, you know, it's, it's um, conceived as a skillful uh, way of, of displaying what he's attained. But uh, there's also discourses within Buddhism that warn against this sort of thing, you know, sort of gratuitous display of magical powers. So there's a real tension between, in a sense, what the Buddha does and what the Buddha tells others uh, that they should or shouldn't do. Yeah, I guess, you know, the fact he he is a man, like you pointed out before, it kind of almost requires um, those kind of displays because he is competing against gods, right? Yeah, yeah. and and there's, there's there are a number of places where 
uh, like say some of his followers say, well, it's easy for the Buddha. He's a natural eunuch. He doesn't have sexual desire. So he has to prove that, no, he's just like, uh, you know, he's he's set up like other men. It's just that he has transcended the desire. Uh, but, you know, if he were, say, if he were a natural eunuch, if he didn't have desire, if he weren't able to perform sexually, he wouldn't be the ultimate man. Mm, yeah. He'd be kind of pathetic, really. Yeah, he would. Yeah. He'd be somebody who sort of ran away from life because he was unable to deal with it. Uh, and so that has that tension comes up over and over again in the text that he has to continually, even after years and years of being celibate, uh, he has to continually prove that he's still a virile, manly man. Yeah, that, that's definitely a theme throughout the book, isn't it? Absolutely. Do you see like this kind of thing in, in other um, religious figures like Jesus and, and in Christianity and, and various other religions? Well, in the book, I, I, I draw some comparisons with, with the, the figure of Jesus and the figure of the Buddha. And I think that's actually quite different. Um, and I think this is interesting, too, because, you know, this idea of masculinities as a, as a study, as a discipline, one of the things that it highlights is that ideals of masculinity are culture-specific and are historical. And they, uh, particularly when you have religious leaders, they will meet different imperatives. So, in the, in the case of the Buddha, he was competing against God. So the Buddhists had to create a figure that could compete on that, uh, on that playing field. Whereas with Jesus, um, the figure of Jesus, one of the concerns was uh, he was clearly God. And so how could God be man? And so a lot of the discourses in Jesus' case were trying to establish that he was also human at the same time. So that was more the problem, uh, you know, not that he was God, because that was accepted, but that he could also be human at the same time. So his humanity is something that's often stressed. And I mentioned uh, there's a whole, um, uh, what's the word, genre in um, medieval art, particularly in, in Renaissance art, in which the 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 young Jesus is, uh, and sometimes the older Jesus' penis is emphasized to show that he really is a man. Really? That he's human, yeah. Mm. And, and there are even... Uh, uh, paintings where you have somebody pointing at his penis, <laughs> and, yeah. and so, so you see, he really is a man too. Yeah. Uh, he's not just God. Wow, I had no idea. There you go. And that there's that, there are a number of books on that that, that look at the you know at Jesus' genitalia as a theme in in Renaissance art, uh, and how that and the purpose that that serves of establishing his humanity. Uh, while also sort of assuming that he's that he's God at the same time. How how did Buddhism in, at this time deal with the fact that the Buddha did die and he and he did uh, feel pain and stuff like that, as you you say in your book? So he, he had a back problem, I think, at, at one point. Well, you know the 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 Buddha of the Pali Canon is a fairly you know I mean he has superhuman abilities, but he leads a, a, he has a human lifespan. Um, he's born from a, a human woman. Um, he walks on the ground like like other men. He eats. He defecates and so forth, and uh, and that's a part of the narrative. And so um, the. Uh, his death is actually not a problem. His death is the final triumph. And if you travel to, to Theravada countries, one of the recurring themes uh, in art is the is the the Buddha laying on a side um, uh, when he's on the verge of attaining parinirvana. 
Uh, and that's sort of his final victory. Uh, and that is kind of the culmination of his path. So this is really the, um, the fulfillment of everything that he's done for many, many lifetimes. It changes in Mahayana where he doesn't really die. He only appears to die and he continues on and he's still accessible today. But in the, the Theravada literature and in the early Indian literature, this idea that the Buddha died is, um, is his final victory because he doesn't come back again. Mm-hmm. So his death is the final death, and it's he attains nirvana, which is a state of ultimate peace. And so all of the work that he's done over the course of countless lifetimes now comes to fulfillment, and that's all illustrated in this theme of the Buddha laying on his side, uh, attaining nirvana. The recli- it's often called the reclining Buddha. This seems to be another tension in terms of the fact that he feels pain, but if he's a perfected being, then why does he have pain? I, th- I thought that was interesting as well when you spoke about that. Well, that's again something you find in the in the Pali Canon where uh, he still has residual karmas. So his back pain is attributed to him being a wrestler in a past life and injuring another wrestler, breaking his back. Right, of course. The Buddha then has sort of back pains that are the the residual uh, remnants of that. And it's only when he's worked out all of his karma. You can, have, you can sort of see it as like a, a car with a tank full of petrol. Right. And until, until all the petrol is exhausted, the engine is going to continue to run. So in a sense, there's, you know, the Buddha has attained this, this mental level of understanding, but there's still a bit of petrol in the tank that's, that's going to uh, continue to cause the engine to, to combust uh, until that's worn off. And then he's able to attain final nirvana once, once all the fuel is gone. Which he, yeah, he obviously did. Um, in terms of his, his death, I, I, I don't know if you know much about it, but I've heard stories um, that he, he was poisoned or um, he ate some bad pork or something like that. Um, do you know much about that? Well, that's, there are a number of stories. And one is that he um, ate, uh, his final meal was uh, had either bad mushrooms or could have been spoiled meat or something like that. Yeah, sure. But uh, that he became sick and he died. But it, it wasn't that he was poisoned. It was that he had already decided that he was going to leave his body, that he was going to end his life. So a Buddha doesn't die unexpectedly. A Buddha knows in advance when he's going to die and how he's going to die. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's the Buddha's decision to give up his life force. Um, and that it, it coincides with him you know, having this meal. But that isn't seen as the actual cause of him dying. The actual cause of him dying is his decision to renounce his life force. And that's a recurring theme in Buddhism, the idea that advanced practitioners can decide the time and situations of their death. And they very often predict in advance. They tell people, at such and such a time, I'm going to leave my body, <coughs> excuse me, and end my life. And then, uh, and part of the lore of these practitioners is often that this then happens the way they, they say it will. Hmm. I heard a remarkable story recently. Uh, one of the first, well, actually the first Tibetan teacher that I ever um, uh, received teachings from, and the first who um, I, the first meditation uh, session I ever did was with him. Um, it uh, a friend of mine was with him in his final days, and the the story that my friend told me was that he uh, he called him and told him. Uh, I'm only going to be I'm only going to be around for three more days. Mm-hmm. So my friend thought, oh, this is really serious, and he got in his car and he drove from New York to Virginia to where this Lama was uh, to be with him uh, and to see what was going on. And, and the Lama said, you know, uh, I know that I'm only going to be uh, I'm only going to be living for another three days. 
And so uh, my friend wasn't really, um, didn't necessarily believe that he was making a prediction of death, but that uh, he thought that he might uh, just need somebody to take care of him or whatever. Mm. But then um, he said, you know, after two days, he said, okay, uh, this is my, I'm going to do my final meditation uh, and don't disturb me. So he went into his, uh, into his room and he said, you know, wait until, for at least another day before you um, uh, come in. But then he said that after a day, the Lama came out and he said that he had been in the bardo the state between lives and one of his best friends uh, a person uh, 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 the uh, guy that he studied with became the throne holder of Gundan who was the the head of the Gilupa order mm-hmm. uh, and they remained close I remember when I was um, when I was there uh, at his center the the monk who would later become the, the throne holder of Gundan came several times to visit and often stayed for like three or four months at a time and um, and so this Lama, uh, Geshe Jambal Tanda, uh, said that when he was, when he had gone into the Bardo, his friend came to visit him, mm-hmm. uh, the, the throne holder of Gundan. And he said, you know, you're actually not going to die right now. It's going to be another day from now. Uh, and so you should go back and, um, uh, you know, go back to your body and so forth for, uh, until the, the karmic time is right. So he did this. And then uh, he then... After after the time that his friend had told him it was time for his final uh, his final meditation, he went back to his room, went into his final meditation, and he died as his friend had predicted. Um, and so my friend then uh, uh, was was the executor of his estate. And one of the things that the Lama had said was that he wanted, when his uh, estate was liquidated, for that money to be used to feed uh, the, the monks of uh, of Sarah Monastery in India, which my friend you know arranged for all this and everything. And the Dalai Lama came to this because uh, this was often sort of a big thing, you know, when a Lama uh, sponsors one of these things. So my friends, uh, well, so the Dalai Lama wanted to know you know, how this had all happened. And so my friend is, you know, and this Lama Geshe Tando was not a well-known monk. Like he didn't have a large following. He never, you know, wrote books or anything like that. But he was a very advanced practitioner who spent probably eight to 12 hours every day doing serious meditation. And so my friend is sort of telling, you know, the, the details of the story and, you know, how he... Uh, Goes into the uh, he goes into his final meditation and then uh, uh, he he meets uh, 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 I can't remember his name but anyway and and I was like hey hey back up a minute you mean the throne holder of Gundan and he said yeah and he said did you know that the throne holder of Gundan was was doing his final meditation and entering the bardo at the same time and it turned out that the Dalai Lama had been with the throne holder when he was in this final stages of his life and it coincided exactly with. Uh, with what this Lama reported in Virginia when he met, you know, when this, the, the throne holder was in India and the, the uh, Geshe Tanda was in, um, in Virginia and, uh, and his friend came to see him in the bardo and they, and they talked. And so the Dalai Lama said, uh, told my friend Paul that he should, he should tell people about this because, uh, you know, this was a sort of, um, it was a validation uh, or a corroboration of the idea that advanced meditators have a high level of control over the death process. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it must do to your brain if you sit there meditating for 12 hours a day. It just, it must, um, yeah, that's incredible. It's an incredible story. Well, I, I've talked to him about this a number of times. One of, the, one of the things that often struck me was that his primary practice was uh, uh, meditation on Tara, who was one of the most important female, well, the most important female Buddha in Tibetan Buddhism. Hmm. And his practice involved visualizing himself as Tara during this practice. So he would spend, you know, probably eight to 12 hours every day visualizing himself as 
a beautiful teenage uh, girl with green skin. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I talked about this a number of times that I just thought it was really interesting. You know, here's this senior Lama, you know, in his 60s um, who spends all day visualizing himself as a beautiful teenage girl. You know, what, is, what does that do to your sense of yourself, uh, you know, your sense of your body, your, your, your personal identity and so forth? Is, is it true in Tibetan Buddhism that... Um very few of them are yogis as such, and not all not all lamas are yogis. And yogis, tantric yogis, are a, a kind of small subsect. Well, you have different Buddhist. different. Uh, there's there's a lot of possibilities within Tibetan Buddhism. Right. So you uh, the largest number of serious religious practitioners would be monks and nuns. Mm -hmm. These are people who have taken vows, who usually wear robes, who live in a monastic situation. But you also have uh, tantric practitioners, uh, usually referred to as ngakpa, mm -hmm. uh, and they will often be, um, they're, they're less sort of centered. They're less, you know, rooted in a particular place. So they often wander from place to place. Traditionally, they were, they were wanderers. Many would live in caves or in remote areas. Uh, many of them would sort of travel large distances. Uh, I've met a number of them. Uh, one time I was back, I was trekking in Zanskar, this very remote, difficult area in the, in the Indian Himalayas. And I climbed over this high pass at about uh, 5,000 meters. And it was really, hot and it was really sunny and I was really beaten. I was, I found there was, there was no shade. There was, it was really open and, uh, and really arid. And I found uh, some shade under a, a rock outcropping. And I was just uh, sort of sitting there trying, you know, reveling in the shade, having some water and eating some bickies. And this tantric uh, yogi came, came by and is, they, they often have like uh, dreadlock hair piled up on top of their heads. Right, right. Um, and so this, this guy came, came, came walking up the trail and I said, hello. And he said, hello. And asked him if he, if he wanted some bickies. He said, sure. So we sat there and we started chatting and um, it turned out that one of my teachers was also his teacher. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and so we had this very sort of strange talk in the middle of nowhere at the top of this high pass in Zanskar. Me and this tantric yogi who was just sort of, he, he, he told me he was basically do, wandering. He was doing a pilgrimage and he was going from from holy site to holy site and look and going to caves where famous meditators had been because there's a sense that their charisma remains in that place. Hmm. So he would spend, like, say, a few months in, in each one of these caves doing his meditation and then move on to the next one. Is, is this tradition disappearing or is it still strong? Oh, it's still very strong, yeah. Uh, there's still right. quite a number of them. They, you don't really hear about them that much because they tend to be solitary. Right. Uh, but, for instance, when I first went to India, to Dharamsala, uh, I found out that there are caves up above the town where, the, where there are... Uh, I guess a couple of dozen or so of these people who were, you know, sort of full-time tantric practitioners living in caves. Uh, usually people from the town will come up and bring the food and so forth, but they will often spend, you know, all of their time up there. Uh, uh, a couple of friends of mine have actually gone to meet with some of them and have had, you know, extended conversations um, uh, with these people who are doing sort of full-time uh, ongoing practice in these remote areas uh, in, in solitary um, solitary situations. Right. So, and that's interesting because we, we were talking about how um, the group or these brotherhoods are important, at least in the Pali canon. It would seem these guys are kind of a little bit different if, if they're solitary most of the time. They are, but they also have, uh, they usually have training in a group situation before they're able to go off and do solitary meditation. Uh, so one of the places I went to, uh, Fiong Monastery, 
uh, I met the abbot and started talking to him and we had some tea together. And this um, was one of the places where that's really designed for these solitary practices. So he took me up to, to this area where they have these, they're basically uh, thick-walled earth cells where the, the meditators will spend three years, three months, and three days in solitary confinement. Uh, with uh, and the cells are designed so there's no um, sunlight coming in, and they will have like a chamber pot that they'll pass out, and the food will be passed in around a corner, um, and they will spend that whole time there just doing the meditation. But they'll spend years of training beforehand, usually with others, before they're in a situation where they're advanced enough to be able to do that meditation. Yeah, sure. Okay. So how do they get chosen? I, I guess by the yogis, they presumably have some sense of whoever's appropriate for initiation into that kind of thing? Well, it's self-selecting, you know, uh, yeah. so they will often decide, you know, I really like to do this, but then they have to have the requisite training. And then uh, the Lama will decide whether or not he thinks or she thinks they're ready to be able to do this sort of practice. I just heard a funny story about this too. A friend of mine uh, who uh, is a, a scholar of, of Tibetan Buddhism, his father went to Tibet before the Chinese invasion, and he went to one of these centers where they have these um, th these uh, meditation huts. And uh, the abbot was showing him around, and he said that as they were walking around, every once in a while they would hear a thud sound and then uh, a cry of pain. And so his my friend's father asked the, the, the abbot what was going on. And he said, oh, those are the beginning meditators. They're just uh, starting to levitate and they haven't controlled it yet. So they hit their head on the ceiling. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, his father never got to meet them or anything. So he had no idea what, what was going on. Wow. Yeah. I, having been to Tibet, um, it's fallen on hard times, I think. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's very depressing uh, yeah, being in Tibet. I made five trips there and... I really doubt that I'll go again. It's just, it's a beautiful place. Um, I, there's a lot that is, you know, wonderful about being there, but it's just so depressing to see what's happened to it. Yeah, it is. I, I'll never forget. I, I was at the monastery. I think it's Sarah. I'm pretty sure off the top of my head. They're the debating monks. And um, I think being a tourist there anyway is kind of not that great. But anyway, they uh, decided to go in and, and have a look because you can actually, you know, watch them debate. And, um, I, I think, you know, most of the tourists initially there were were probably Europeans and, and West and were keeping a, you know, a good distance. And then a, a busload of Chinese tourists rocked up and they all jump off and, you know, you have the person with a little flag and the speaker and they, I'll never forget, they just walk straight in amongst all these debating monks and like we're behind them getting photos and like it was just... Just really depressing, and I, I kind of at that point I was like, oh well, what, whatever was here is probably not really here uh, anymore. Um, but as you say, I guess in places like India or Bhutan, it's it's probably still going strong. Yeah, and and also in the West too. Um, yeah. Um, the pro the graduate program that I studied in at University of Virginia was the only academic program that ever incorporated debate into the program. Mm. So we would actually train in debate for a number of years. Uh, and one of the when I first went to India, uh, the high point of my trip was uh, visiting the Dalai Lama and having a debate with him uh, in Tibetan on Buddhist philosophy. So we actually got to the point where we could we could participate in debates with monks and at least sort of hold our own. And when I first went to in, uh, to Tibet, uh, I remember going to Tashi Limpo Monastery and watching the monks in the in the debating courtyard and 
they were sort of fumbling. Uh, they would get stuck. They didn't know what to do. And I mentioned this to the to the Lama who was in charge, and he just sort of shook his head and said, yeah, well, this is the situation. Uh, the Chinese will only let us debate for about an hour a day. Uh, we only have five textbooks for, for several hundred monks that we have to share, wow. and they don't give us enough time to be able to do the kind of training that we used to do. So basically, we do the best we can, but we're, we're aware that we're really just providing entertainment for tourists. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely what it was. It was um, really depressing. But, it, you know, it's such a beautiful country. It's just so unfortunate um, that it, it's lost that. Yeah. Um, do, do you see some of these um, masculine conceptions of Buddhism that we've been going through in the Pali Canon? Do, do you see much of that in Tibetan Buddhism today? Well, that's interesting because, you know, as I said, it really didn't translate. Mm. So the Tibetans didn't pick up on this stuff. Uh, one of the, the core tropes is the idea of the major physical characteristics of a great man, the Mahapurusha Lakshana. Uh, uh, things like the, the lump on top of his head and web, uh, webs between his fingers and toes and things like that, uh, all of which are said to have uh, adorned the, the body of the Buddha and to have marked him as a Buddha. Uh, and that stuff, really, you know, you have like a few of these things will will show up in Tibetan representations of the Buddha, but nothing like in India. There's nothing like the sort of fascination the Indians had with it. So for the Tibetans, it's there, you know, they're aware of it, they talk about it, but it doesn't, it didn't excite them the way it did the Indians. And the same is true in East Asia. It's very interesting um, how some cultures have kind of viewed it differently, but it makes total sense. I mean, you, you also have like, militant um, sects of Buddhism, like in uh, Burma, for example, with I think the monks called Waratu or something, who's running all sorts of, uh, you know, anti-Islam campaigns over there. And it, it always interested me because I, I never understood at the time, given my conception as, of Buddhism as a peaceful, you know, turn the other cheek kind of philosophy, which may or may not be true, I, depending on the context, that it could express this kind of militarism um, and has done in the past? Well, Buddhism is, you know, it's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so you have very, you have many, many different discourses uh, within Buddhism. Uh, some of them are inconsistent with other ones. But um, say in in Theravada Buddhism, which is where, you know, the, the type of Buddhism that's practiced in Burma, you one of the discourses that, that's really important is uh, found in text. There are a couple of texts, one called the Mahavamsa and the other one, the Deepavamsa. These are purportedly historical texts that talk about uh, battles between Buddhists and non-Buddhists uh, for control of Sri Lanka. And the king, uh, Dutagamani, who uh, is in charge, uh, goes to war against the Tamils, who are um, seen as, as anti-Buddhist and is trying to take over this Buddhist island. And he slaughters them. And this is, uh, he's worried about his karma, and he's assured by the monks that not only is there no bad karma, but they're, they're basically... Uh, uh, minions of Mara. So there's only good karma to be had from slaughtering them because he's protecting the Dharma. And so that's something that you find, you know, that became a, an important discourse within Theravada Buddhism. So while you have a founder, the Buddha, who was even, you know, w was in favor of his clan being slaughtered and wiped out uh, and, uh, because they refused to fight, even though they were fully capable of defeating their enemies, later discourses compete with that and uh, praise, you know, sort of slaughter of, of enemies. It's very interesting um, how some cultures have kind of viewed it differently, but it makes total sense. I mean, you, you also have like 
militant um, sects of Buddhism, like in uh, Burma, for example, with I think the monks called Waratu or something, who's running all sorts of, uh, you know, anti-Islam campaigns over there. And it, it always interested me because I, I never understood at the time, given my conception as, of Buddhism as a peaceful you know, turn the other cheek kind of philosophy, which may or may not be true, I, depending on the context, that it could express this kind of militarism um, and has done in the past. Buddhism is, you know, it's been around for a long time. And so you have very, you have many, many different discourses uh, within Buddhism. Uh, some of them are inconsistent with other ones. But um, say in in Theravada Buddhism, which is where you know the the type of Buddhism that's practiced in Burma, you one of the discourses that, that's really important is uh, found in text. There are a couple of texts. One called the Mahavamsa, and the other one the Deepavamsa. These are purportedly historical texts that talk about uh, battles between Buddhists and non-Buddhists uh, for control of Sri Lanka, and the king uh, Dutagamani, who uh, is in charge, uh, goes to war against the Tamils, who are um, seen as, as anti-Buddhist and is trying to take over this Buddhist island, and he slaughters them. And this is—he's uh, worried about his karma, and he's assured by the monks that not only is there no bad karma, but they're—they're they're basically. Uh, uh, minions of Mara. So there's only good karma to be had from slaughtering them because he's protecting the Dharma. And so that's something that you find, you know, that became a, an important discourse within Theravada Buddhism. So while you have a founder, the Buddha, who was even, you know, w was in favor of his clan being slaughtered and wiped out uh, and, uh, because they refused to fight, even though they were fully capable of defeating their enemies, Later discourses compete with that and uh, praise, you know, sort of slaughter of, of enemies. They're kind of a masculine culture. I mean, you have various uh, tribes there, I guess, um, the, that are quite warrior-like. I forget the exact name of the... Um, they're, they're, you probably think of the Kambas. Yeah, that's it, the Kambas, yeah, yeah. I was really shocked. They're huge people. They're yeah, they are. Mongols, right? They're just massive uh, warrior-looking people. Yeah, they, and they're they're generally pretty tough too. I've I've known quite a number of Kambas. One of my main, probably my main teacher, Kensuyoshi Tupton, was a, a Kamba, and he was he was a big guy, and and uh, probably would have been a very physically imposing uh, young man. Sure, and I think they're the the only tribe, well, not that's really put up or initially put up a big fight against the Chinese invasion. Yeah, the Kambas were, were sort of at the forefront of the resistance, but there were others too. Uh, but the Kambas, yeah, they were sort of known as the, the, the ones who really strongly resisted and formed a guerrilla movement. I, I believe also, um, I think we were talking about a certain uh, text in, in uh, Theravada Buddhism where it, it kind of allows the possibility for violence against other, other religious uh, outlooks. Uh, there are two of them. Uh, one is the Great Chronicle, the Mahavamsa. The other one is the Chronicle of the Island, that is of Sri Lanka, the, the Deepavamsa. And in both of them, the idea of defending the Dharma uh, through violence is extolled. That is something that is the duty of kings to protect the Dharma against um, um, anti-Buddhists who are trying to dislodge it. Sure. I was also aware of a Tibetan Buddhist text, an ancient text that describes or predicts like a great Buddhist army sweeping down from the mountains and destroying Islam. I, I think you're probably talking about the Kalachakra Tantra. 
I think that's it. Yeah. The the, the Kala Chakra was written uh, after well after the Muslim invasions of India had started, and so they discuss Islam as as the enemy of Buddhism, and uh, Shambhala is going to be the last refuge of Buddhism, and it's going to it's going to be attacked by the enemies of the Dharma, and they're going to be defeated. But um, and then Buddhism will flourish flourish for another thousand years, after which this uh, dispensation of Shakyamuni Buddha will end, and then uh, Buddhism will basically disappear from the earth until the next Buddha Maitreya comes along. Mm. And there's several Buddhas, right? I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Buddha is just Buddha means uh, awakened. Yeah. Uh, so there have been Buddhas before this, before Shakyamuni, and there'll be Buddhas after him. Uh, according to some Mahayana sources, there were a thousand Buddhas in our era of the world, mm. uh, and and every sentient being has the capacity to become a Buddha. So if you do the right sorts of things, you can attain the same level as Shakyamuni did, and and operate as a Buddha too. So I guess this is probably a reasonably good time to uh, finish up. Um, I'm just thinking, if you want to, if you've got any projects coming up or anything like that that might be of interest to people. Now, I, I do different things. One of the, the things that I like about academia is that as long as you're productive, most universities don't really care what you do. Right. And so I've been able to use that freedom to do a lot of different things. This this uh, project on masculinity was really something that just kind of happened, largely because I was working with my friend and I started reading this book and it sparked this idea. And then I've written a number of book chapters and articles and so forth that have come out from this. But basically, if I hadn't met this guy and if we hadn't taught a course together, that never would have happened. Uh, and at this point, I've pretty much done everything that I can think of doing in that area. Uh, and I'm working on other projects. So um, I've done a lot of work on Chinese propaganda. Uh, that is how Chinese um, the Chinese government is trying to influence the way... Sorry, I need to free my dog. Um, the way Chinese Buddhists are trying to change uh, Chinese, um, uh, the Chinese government is trying to influence the way Tibetans think and to change their perspective, uh, largely unsuccessfully. Hmm. Uh, right now, the two main projects I'm working on, uh, one is on Buddhist epistemology, theory of knowledge, and it's looking at a debate within Tibetan Buddhism that started in the 15th century and that has involved many of Tibet's best minds uh, for, for about 400 years or so and still continues today. Uh, looking particularly at the two truths and their conceptual ramifications. And it's a really interesting project because it gets at really fundamental issues in Buddhist thought and practice. And it really and it's it's the sort of thing that starts with ideas in Buddhism like the two truths that make sense conceptually, but then when you start really sort of teasing out the ramifications of them, uh, problems arise. And so then and um, so you have different ways of trying to deal with the problems and to find solutions to the sort of underlying conceptual issues within Buddhist thought. And another one is uh, looking is a, a, a Tibetan environmental history project, mm. where we have scientists, historians, and textual scholars all working together to develop um, uh, a picture of Tibet's environmental past, particularly focusing on rivers. Uh, so we have two scientists at Australian National University, uh, one who works uh, on groundwater systems and another one who works on river systems and on dams. Um, we have um, the person who really started this was one of my PhD students, Ruth Gamble, who is now at La Trobe, who is a historian. Uh, and then we have two people in Europe, uh, Petra Maurer at Ludwig Maximilians University and Per Sorensen, who is a historian who's probably written more on water and history on Tibet than anybody else. Uh, there's a Chinese historian uh, who works in, in, in China who is of Tibetan uh, background. Um, 
And uh, my colleague, Julian Tan, who is an anthropologist, uh, who has uh, spent a lot of time working particularly with, with nomads in Tibet. And so we're all kind of pooling our resources, looking at Tibet's environmental past from different perspectives. And uh, we're right now working on articles, but we hope eventually to write a book that's sort of a comprehensive environmental history of water and uh, Tibetan environmental history. Sounds interesting. Well, we'll have to get those details off you when it, when it eventually does come out. Do you have a, a website or something I can refer people to? Well, if you go to the to Deakin University, they have uh, all universities have researchers' websites. So this will give you a sense of you know things that I've published and what I'm doing now and things like that. I actually need to, to update it. I'm, it's kind of out of date, I think, but uh, it'll give you sort of a general view of what I've done at least you know up until probably about a year ago when I stopped keeping uh, when I stopped updating it. Okay, great. Well, I'll definitely get some links and some uh, links to books and stuff like that together for people and uh, post them in the show notes. I think um, that'd be great. And I have a curriculum vitae that lists all of my publications if you want to uh, have that. Yeah, yeah cool. cool. Yeah, yeah just, just uh, flick, flick it through and I, I can include that. That'd be great. Okay. Well, I really enjoyed this, mate. It was, it was excellent. Um, and thank you for writing that book. It was just fantastic and, and really enjoyed it. Thanks for interviewing me. I, as I told you um, in my email, this, this was the most fun project I've ever done. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And as soon as I started reading this uh, book by my friend Chris, uh, it just sparked all kinds of images and associations that I never would have had if, if I hadn't met him, if I hadn't started reading this book. Yeah, sure. It's funny how, how the world works like that. Um, yeah, so I'll have to, um, I'd love to do this again sometime and uh, maybe we can chat about some other stuff. That'd be great. Okay. I'm happy to talk about the epistemology project if you want. That was a really interesting one. Great. Well, um, yeah, be sure to let me know and I'll grab a coffee and have a read. Then we can do it. Sounds good. Okay. Well, enjoy your walk with your uh, dog and uh, yeah, appreciate you coming on.